Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you today. How was your week? How was your week? Good. Okay. Now you're supposed to say, how was your week, Pastor Steve? I got a new grandbaby on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't do anything, but thanks for clapping. I didn't even show up because she was born in Australia. And uh, my wife is there, and uh, I'm a bachelor for a month, and I'm realizing how unbelievably incompetent I am on my own. So, uh, yeah. Uh, let's pray. Father God, we love you. And as we have sung, we have so little to offer you except a heart full of praise. And so we've come this day. So, Father God, sit upon your throne. Uh, speak to us in a way that's clear and personal and powerful, in a way that encourages us if we need encouragement, in a way that corrects us if we need correction. Father, thank you that you go before us. Thank you that you stand behind us. Thank you that you are under us, sustaining us, and you're our loving Father over and upon us, but most of all, that your Spirit is in us. And so we are just so grateful this day. Help your servant who's neither capable nor worthy of the task at hand. And so, Father, I need your help, and I ask for it. And so we've come to sit at your feet. We want to leave this place and have been with Jesus and have him wash our feet. And that is our heart cry, our prayer this morning. Amen. And amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. And um, I'm sorry that this uh, series is getting a little bit uh, broken up, but that's just the way life works, I guess. Uh, but let me encapsulate where we were on our first Sunday in Ruth. Uh, we have a family of four, Elimelech and Naomi, and uh, they leave with their two boys from Bethlehem, and they travel down to uh, Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem. It's kind of an irony because Bethlehem means house of bread, and, but there's no bread. So they travel down to Moab and they're living down there. And what do you know if Elimelech doesn't die? And uh, now the two boys have to look after Naomi, their mom, and they marry Moabite women, which is not cool for an Israelite to intermarry. It's not within God's will, but they marry these two girls named uh, Orpah and Ruth. About 10 years after Elimelech dies, the boys die. So now <clears throat> uh, they're married and the boys die. So now three women are left, two daughter-in-laws and a mother-in-law. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we're going to begin to read at verse number 6. Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have yet sons. Have I yet sons in my womb womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were growing? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, from where, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And this is God's word. So let's encapsulate that, just get our heads around it. Naomi decides to go back to Israel because she's heard in Moab that they now have food back in uh, Judah. And so the famine has lifted, and she knows that it's much better to be amongst her own people than to be amongst the Moabites, to be back with the Israelites. And her two daughter-in-laws, they begin to follow her back on this journey back there. But uh, she says, you know, listen, You know, oy vey, I'm old. I'm not having any more children. Nice Jewish mother, right? She says, you you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to find a husband. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have boys. You're going to wait. No, you got to go back. Go back to the house of your mother where you'll be protected and you will be looked after. And that will just be better. And I'll go back to uh, Bethlehem. Just return to your families. And uh, that's her desire. And Orpah does. And Orpah does. But Ruth says, no, 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 Naomi, I want to stay with you. I want to stay with you. And we see in verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Ruth clung to her. So I want us to look at the very first, you first moment in the passage. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to just take a look at some principles and practices of what it's like to put the other person first in your life which arguably is not always easy. Amen? It's not always easy. Sometimes it's tough. But this is a beautiful passage of the you-first principle that we should be living out as God's people. And so let's take a look at this very first one. Naomi surely knew that it was wrong for her sons to marry Moabites. But they did. Now, What's a mother-in-law or father-in-law or a parent to do when a child marries outside of God's will? And having been a pastor for many years, I have seen this over and over again. What are you to do? You know, your son or daughter who is a Christian marries a non-Christian, and your heart kind of breaks and you go, oh my goodness. And I have had 
parents and siblings and friends and grandparents come to me and they, they're, they're heartbroken and they say, my daughter, my son, my daughter-in-law, my friend, whoever, my uh, grandchild, my friend is going to marry this person. They confess to be a Christian. They're a follower of Christ. They, they got baptized and everything and now they're going to marry this non-Christian. And what am I going to do? So what do you do? What do you do? The first thing you have to do is this, friends. Remember that whoever enters into your life is ordained of God. Is ordained of God. And is in the image of God. And the only thing you can do is to respond in love. Now, does that preclude that you would give a warning that that's not God's will? No. But once that marriage has taken place, all you can do is love. Because what's outside of God's will can ultimately be used for his purposes. Joni Erickson Taddy, you might remember that lady who dove into a pool and uh, had a spinal injury, ended up with her life in a wheelchair. She, she had a saying. She said, God allows that which he hates to bring about that which he loves. So what do you do? Naomi, she didn't choose Orpah or Ruth. Her sons did, and they were Moabites. And that's the other side of the tracks, if you will, for Israelites. But look at verse 14. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. When separation is imminent, these daughters and this mother-in-law, these daughter-in-laws and this mother-in-law, they just wept. Because that's what love does, doesn't it? Love hurts when separation comes. And when your kids get into a marriage that you would prefer that they did not, after that has taken place, let me encourage you with this. Turn up the love. Turn up the love. Because I have had the privilege of seeing over and over again what happens when that happens. Because that son-in-law or daughter-in-law for them, you may be the first clear and vivid picture of someone who represents themselves as a Christ one, as a Christ follower. And over and over again, I have seen where uh, parent-in-laws, parents love this new spouse, even though they felt it was outside of God's will, and they just pour out the love, and guess what? Down the road, you know what I've had the privilege of doing? Is baptizing that son-in-law or that daughter-in-law because they have been loved into the kingdom of God. And the old, I knew you shouldn't have married her. It doesn't work at that point. It just doesn't work. And so Naomi, that's what she does. She loves them. And when they have to separate, what is it? They raise their voices and they weep. They love this woman and she loves them. Now, this is hard because there is some stuff, some hurt, and some disappointment, I think, that goes on in their lives. Now, turn over quickly, if you would, just to John chapter 8, just for, just for a moment. I want you to see something here. I want you to see something here. John chapter 8, this is the story of a woman caught in adultery. The woman is brought to Jesus, and they want to drop the boom on this woman, and she's caught in the act. Okay? John chapter 8, let me begin to read verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, 
he stood up and said to them, let he, him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. There's much conjecture about what he wrote. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the other ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, listen to this, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on, sin no more. See, what do you do with somebody who is outside of the will of God? We see it right here by way of the Lord Jesus. It's a picture of what you do. Two things together, grace and truth. Grace and truth. He removes the accusers who, like most of us, are kind of self-righteous, right? We can be self-righteous, look down our self-righteous noses, let's face it. And he protects her, and he connects with her in the safety of privacy, and he pours on grace, I do not condemn you, but then he gives her the truth, don't sin anymore. Live your life differently. And that's a beautiful picture of what you do. You don't give a free pass on the sin, but you don't harp away at it nonstop either. What if we viewed everyone who intersected with our lives, right? Whether we're like them or whether we even like them or have any choice in that matter, what if we viewed them as made in the image of God and that that intersection was ordained of God? What a kingdom opportunity that would be for redemptive relationships. Naomi chooses, even though they've married, their, she, these two girls have married her sons, she chooses to love Orpah and Ruth. Turn back to Ruth, the book of Ruth. And that love extends to putting their good first. Look at verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. She says, go home. That's what's going to be best for you. Don't worry about me. Although Naomi is a woman who's very vulnerable at this point in this culture. She's an unmarried woman, woman with no children. She's going to go back to Bethlehem, back to Judah, the Lord kingdom. And she, she is a vulnerable woman. But she puts these two beloved daughter-in-laws first, and she says, you go back, your good comes first. And there's another point that flows out of that. Look, if you will, to verse 13b, the second part of the verse. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now listen carefully, church. This is very important if you're going to put other people's people first. And this is very hard to do. But if you're going to put others first, that means you will not punish them with your pain. Do you hear that? You will not punish others with your pain. See, Naomi says, you know what? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She doesn't say, because you married my sons, you two Moabs. Right? It's very interesting. Understanding the Lord's sovereignty in all things, she recognized that her bitter experiences were from the Lord, between her and the Lord. And behind this, I wonder if she recognizes that she made a mistake by her and Elimelech moving to Moab 
When she could have stayed in Bethlehem, lots of people did and trusted the Lord there. And so that set in motion a series of events that has ended up where she is. But even in her despair, Naomi does not say, I love you girls, but part of this is the fact that you Moabites have married my boys. No, no, this is between her and the Lord. Have you ever, have you ever poured your pain out on somebody else? just for the sake of pouring it out. Uh, I remember years ago, we lived in Atlanta. And uh, one Saturday night, I was in the airport in Atlanta. It's a busy airport. And I was down at the gate, you know, sitting there waiting. And there was all these people sitting around waiting for my flight. And, the, you know, there, just all these people, all the chairs and the gates right there. And so I'm sitting there reading a book or something, and there's lots of people. And down the concourse, all of a sudden, we hear this voice of this guy. And he is jacked up. I mean, he is really angry. And he's loud and obnoxious. And the language is sort of like bowling language. You know, if you've ever... Okay, you guys don't bowl. Uh, but... Uh, Anyways, I mean, it's not, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we used to say like, like a sailor. Does that help? Okay. Okay. And so it's, it's rugged, right? And everybody's feeling kind of uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden into sight comes this guy and he's dragging a couple suitcases. He's kind of dragging his wife behind him. He's yelling at her. The language is horrible. He's angry. He's upset. And he gets up to the check-in thing, you know, where there's two ladies standing there, you know, right? Where you check in at the and he said, I've been sent from another, uh, and I missed my flight, and, uh, and this company, Delta Airlines, you're a bunch of, and, the, and it's unbelievable, and everybody's feeling awkward and uncomfortable, and the two ladies there, sir, you need to calm down, I don't have to calm down, and, and I'm supposed to get on that flight, and she looks over, and she goes, well, the door is closed, because it was the next door, you know, I'm at this door, it's the next door, but and he blows a gasket. You better can't tell me it's closed. And it's wild. And finally, the door opens, and a guy steps out, and he says, are those the two passengers? And she goes, yeah, can they still get on? He goes, oh, yeah, we're waiting for him. And, and I'm thinking, this is rugged, right? So he can get on the flight after all. So he says, come on. He's walking. And I'm sitting there, and, and I've just about had all I can take. So I say, in the best combination of Clint Eastwood and Jason Bourne that I can conjure up. I guess you owe them an apology. Yeah. But you know, you're in an airport, so you know he doesn't have a gun. And, and, right? You know that. You know he doesn't have a gun. And you can live without your teeth. Because my grandmother did. She lived without her teeth. So I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I can survive this right. So he's walking along, and I go, I guess you owe them an apology. And you can see everybody go, like this, you know? And uh, he, he, he stops with his bags, and he turns, and he goes, who said that? So I, I, I stand up. As I'm standing up, I'm saying, Lord, make me look six foot five instead of five foot six. So I stand up, and I go, I did. <laughs> you know? And he goes, what did you say anyway? And I said, I think you owe them an apology. And then he said some things that were not very pleasant. And his wife said, come on, just come on. And so he walked over and I sat down and everybody where I was sitting, they all clapped, okay? And uh, the two ladies were up, you know, working at the counter, you know? And this lady turns around and she looks at me and she goes, uh, sir, what's your name? And I thought, oh, 
I probably, like, maybe they're upset that I created a scene. And I said, oh, it's Steve Adams. She goes, okay. She goes, Mr. Adams, uh, are you flying in coach? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes, not tonight, honey. You're in first class. <laughs> I'm in first class, pal! You know those little chocolates and all that? See, he had to pour his pain out on everybody around him. Now, he wasn't a Christ follower, but I've seen Christ followers do this, where something happens in their life, largely it's of their own doing, and they've got to take that, I love you, but, and they pour out their pain on others. And if that's a struggle with you, take the course that Don's offering, this emotionally healthy spirituality. Because that's a key thing that you, you just got to, if I'm going to feel pain, you're going to feel pain. But Naomi does not do that. Have you ever done it? Ever poured out your pain on another? Because loving another is saying, you know what? I love you and I'm not going to punish you with my pain. Because you know what happens? When you punish others with your pain, it doesn't eliminate it. It actually multiplies it. It multiplies it. even when they may have contributed to it. There's a caveat. And she, Naomi could have argued that these daughters contributed to it, right? Next, next. Putting others first means sacrifice. See the pericope, the, the story changes there in verse 16. Now Ruth is going to put Naomi first. The table's going to get turned. Because of verse 16, Ruth says, the verse that's been quoted in practically, you know, 90% of every wedding that I've ever been to, now where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. But the truth is, Ruth, they're not your people. So Ruth's saying, I'm going to go and cling to you, even though when this Moabite gets to Bethlehem, she likely will not be all that welcome. And without a doubt, Ruth loves Naomi and realizes Naomi's been hammered by life, loss after loss after loss. She's a fragile woman. And in spite of the permission that Naomi grants Ruth, Ruth says, no, no, we're going to be together for good, for both of our good. Orpah, she goes back to the family and back to the familiar, but Ruth puts Naomi first, and she sets off into the unknown. And frankly, really, what's likely to be unfriendly. Next, I want you to notice verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Here's the point, friends. Putting others good over mine means I live out my faith in the midst of loss. I live out my faith in the midst of loss. You see, the, the, the culmination of this astounding promise of commitment by Ruth is a commitment to the God of Naomi. She's a Moabite. They're pantheists. They believe in multiple gods. That's why at one point we read here, return to your gods, plural. But Ruth says to Naomi, no, your God will be my God. Faith in the Lord, especially in the faith, face of bitter trials, is frequently used by the Lord to produce faith in others. 
Naomi is resolute in her faith in the midst of her great loss. And I think that's immensely attractive to Ruth. And then look at the capstone of this commitment in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death part me from you. Ruth says, I am in this, Naomi. Your God will be my God. I am fully in. And you know what part of that, uh, what helped that along, I'm certain, is Naomi never slighted God. She said, God's raised his hand against me. But she never slights God. She never despises God, although she acknowledged she felt that, you know, she was under some punishment. There was something captivating to Ruth about Naomi's faith, even though she had endured this deep pain and these deep trials. And I believe as a watching world looks at us, friends, and observes a submissive faith in the Lord, it is prompted to ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. It's a mistake to think that we need to make the Lord more attractive to others by giving the impression that life of faith is easy breezy. Woo! That'll last for a season, but faith in the Lord often shines brightest and most attractive in the reality of bitter trials. The suffering believer who clings to the love of the Lord in times of trial I believe, is more likely to promote faith in others than those who appear to have successful and kind of straightforward lives. Putting others first means you live out your faith in a time of loss. That's what Hebrews 11 is about, right? Read Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith area, right? Men and women who risked and endured by faith, and here we are talking about them, right? And that is faith-strengthening to all of us. I've had the privilege over the years, you know, of going to hospitals and hospices and, and met with men and women who were at the end of their lives and they knew it. They knew it. In some cases, hours away, days away, and they just love the Lord in the midst of that trial. Love the Lord when they're facing their exit from this earthly journey. And I've walked out of those places and said, wow, that was just so faith-strengthening. So beautiful. It's such an encouragement to me. It's so powerful. Next, putting others' good over mine will only happen... And this is the most important one that I'm going to say. Will only happen when my good is fully given over to the Lord. If I have a day when I feel like imposed upon or treated unfairly or mishandled or that somebody sort of jumped in front of me in whatever it happens to be, you know what? The issue really is that I have not put Christ first in my life. Right? That's Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I what? I no longer live. It's not me, it's Jesus in me, first and foremost. And if you have surrendered your life to Christ, then we have moved ourselves out of a word and a reality that's destroying our culture. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've moved away from entitlement. And that is destroying the culture and the world in which we live. I'm entitled, right? That's why Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, if anyone comes to me 
right? If you're going to come after me, then you need to do what? You need to, does anybody remember? Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. This is going to be a life of surrender and sacrifice and denial. And when you get to that place in your thinking, and that goes from your head to your heart, then you know what? Putting others good first becomes much, much easier. When you understand that God is first and foremost, right? And everything that happens is okay because you're fully given over to God. I had a guy that was on my church staff when I was pastoring. Funny story, he had a college student living in his basement. And uh, one night he's like, oh no, it's his birthday today. And it was like the end of the day, like eight o'clock at night. And he's like, I got to do something for this guy's birthday. And he, like, he, he was just a boarder. He didn't really know the guy well. And he said, you know, I, I know it's his birthday. What am I going to do? I don't, I don't have anything to give. Well, that Sunday at church, some person at church had went up to this pastor on our staff and said, hey, uh, you know, I really want to bless you. And he gave him a Tim Hortons card, Tim Hortons gift card, right? And he said, oh, okay, thanks. So he had that Tim Hortons gift card, you know? And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, you know what? I'll give him that gift card. You know, it'd be like 25 bucks, right? And that's fine. I don't really know the guy. I'll just give it to him, $25, whatever it is. So he gives him the gift card. And the guy says, oh, thanks a lot. He goes, oh, you're welcome, man. Happy birthday. Uh. A couple days later, the guy comes back and he, he says to the guy on our staff, the pastor, he goes, I, I just want to say thanks. And he goes, oh, for what? He goes, for the gift card. And he goes, oh, you're welcome. I just wanted to do something for your birthday. He goes, yeah, but he said, you know, $300 is a lot of money on a Tim Hortons gift card. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but I really wanted to bless you, right? <laughs> right? But, but if you believe that God is sovereign, right, and, and, and that you're surrendered to him and whatever happens, then you can just laugh about that. And that's what he did. We just, we just had a laugh. We just had a great laugh about it, right? Whatever rules your heart, friends, will control your behavior. If Jesus rules your heart, your behavior will align with that one. That forward church that I pastored in Cambridge during the, or before, well before the Second World War, a young boy came to our Sunday school. His name was John Haverson. And uh, he went all the way through Sunday school, and uh, he eventually spent 12 years training to be a missionary pilot. And he traveled to New Guinea, and only after 12 months of service, his little plane went down, and it was never located. He was lost. And his wife knew when he kissed uh, when, he kissed, when they kissed goodbye that morning that it was her final farewell, she just had a sense of this, that she was going to lose her young husband. But John's mother wrote this in a letter to the church that I actually found when I was pastoring in some of the archives. She wrote this. Listen to the sentence that this missionary mom who lost her son, who realized that, you know, everything about her was fully given over to God. She wrote this. We may never know what happened to that plane, but we do know God was there and we have no will but his. Isn't that amazing? We have no will but his. And that is why this last point, putting others good over mine, will only happen when my good is given over fully to God. That's the bedrock, the foundation of everything I've said this morning because, listen, because that is the mirror image of living out a life reflecting Jesus right? 
I will remember that whoever enters into my life is ordained of God and in the image of God. Therefore, my response is to love. That's why the Gospels are full of Jesus taking time with people that cross his path, right? A Samaritan woman, a Pharisee who comes in the middle of the night, a man born blind, a beggar, a demon-possessed demoniac, a Gennesaret, and even his own disciples Jesus views as gifts from the Father, Punishing others means, you know, I will not punish them, or putting others first means I will not punish them with my pain. Jesus doesn't say in the Garden of Gethsemane to those, you know, sleepy-eyed disciples, come on, guys, I'm, I'm about to face a horrendous, torturous experience. And, and, you know, you can't even stay awake. Come on, dudes. Now, he makes a little reference to it, but, but it's amazing, right? Putting others first over mine means sacrifice. How about a a penniless life, stepping from the glory of heaven to a penniless life to a torturous cross? The sacrifice of God condescending from heaven to the cross. Unbelievable. Putting others first over the good of mine, living out your faith in the midst of loss. How about Mark chapter 10? Let me read verses 33, 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death over the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus, how can you be so assured of that? Because... In the midst of loss, my faith, Jesus said, supersedes. Putting others' good over mine will only happen when my good is fully given over to God. Not my will. Not my will, God. But your will be done. Amen? Let me just say this. When you begin to do this, and it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes. When you begin to do this, though, your pain will give way to experiencing the pleasure of God. And that's a beautiful reality. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, may we put others first in our lives, reflecting the Lord Jesus in such a powerful way. May that be our experience. May we do it readily and enthusiastically. Even when there's a cost, there's a sacrifice to it, Father. May we not take our pain in life and pour it out on others, but give it over to you for you have told us to lay it upon you, that you'll carry our cares. May we realize that everything in our lives is ordained by you, and first and foremost, we've given over, we've fully surrendered, we are crucified with the Lord Jesus. And Father, may we be able to say, it doesn't matter about me. The good of the other is so important. It's so Christ-like. It's so beautiful. And in so doing, may we experience your pleasure. And it's the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.